Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. My name is Sean Barry, and I'm a partner at Lyft Economy. My guest today is Ed Mitson. Ed Mitson is a philanthropist, executive, author, and entrepreneur whose businesses have garnered more than a billion dollars in revenue. He's the founder and CEO of the Finger Paint Group and also a believer in intentional philanthropy. Ed also co-founded the award-winning nonprofit business for good with his wife, Lisa. They make significant contributions to organizations focused on creative, positive change here in the capital region of Albany, New York. Welcome to the podcast, Ed. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So I'd love to start off with inviting you to share some of your your background and how you got into the work that you're doing today. Sure. So I had spent a career in healthcare marketing and done a lot of work in the healthcare space for about 30 years and built several companies. And most recently, back in 2020, my wife and I sold a, a piece of our company, the Finger Paint Group, to a private equity firm, which really overnight changed our financial situation dramatically. And we uh, candidly made more money than we ever dreamed of. We paid off our mortgage. We got a nice second home. And then we sat around and said, okay, we're good. We don't need a house in Deer Valley or the south of France. Or We're happy. I live on a farm in upstate New York. I've got everything I could need. So we decided that we wanted to start a foundation called Business for Good, which both Lisa and I are doers. We, we weren't really going to be content writing checks. We wanted to be active in the change we were seeking and try to use our entrepreneurial expertise and background, both in order to try to drive, get people up the income curve in a lot of underserved communities. And our feeling has been that we're not going to solve hunger with more food pantries. We need to get people up the income curve, good paying jobs, good health care, and that will help eradicate a lot of the challenges that societies face. Hunger, housing insecurity, healthcare disparities, education inequality. It all really comes back fundamentally, in our opinion, to income and wealth. And that's so that's what we're trying to do. Well, thanks, Ed. And it's certainly important work at these times. Can you share, because I know in your previous to starting Business for Good, you were certainly a contributor, a philanthropist. So was there a certain event or something that changed that kind of gave you this new new idea or new approach to, to, to make an impact? We had both been very active in giving back to our communities, and we instilled that in all the companies that we had started. And nowadays, I think people want to come and work for companies that they know are trying to make the world a better place, in addition to doing whatever their core mission is, especially the young adults that are, that are entering the workforce. And we had been involved in, in many different organizations. We, we bought blood mobiles for the Red Cross. We helped to raise money for a homeless shelter in upstate New York. We've been involved with food insecurity and donating to food pantries and things like that. But I would say that, you know, when we came across the, the money from the sale of our company, I like to tell this story. When I got out of college, I was making $600 a month working at a local hospital. I was bringing home $600. $330 was my rent. It was a cockroach infested, dumpy apartment in downtown Albany. I had a $113 student loan and the rest was for food and, and laundry. And you know, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a car. I had to be able to find a place that I could walk to work. 
you know, fast forward 30 years and now we have this unbelievable life. And there's a lot of folks that still live in that same apartment complex that have never gotten out. You know, I know everybody says, well, you worked really hard, you deserve it. But a lot of people work really hard. And as I started to do more research, I read the book uh, Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And I started to really try to understand why are some people just left behind and why do some people succeed? And I think all along we've been, I've been, it's been a journey over the last few years to try to understand the problems in, especially in the upstate New York area and, and how we can ultimately try to fix them. I would say that it wasn't one singular event that wanted us to get involved. We just felt incredibly blessed. COVID happened and the haves and have not disparity went in a hyperdrive. We just felt like we could help make a difference in the communities. And we're both doers. We love having projects and meeting new people. And, and it's been honestly the most rewarding thing we've ever done. Well, and I'm curious, Ed, specifically about the, the business component, right? Because the other stuff you mentioned was, was more like gift philanthropy, which is generous and, and helpful, but it's different to give somebody a job than to give them a gift, right? And so is this the, with business for good, is that the first time you've been involved with that type of philanthropy? Yeah, it is. I mean, we, we bought a couple of restaurants. We're giving people good paying jobs, helping to offset their health care costs. And then if we make any money, we're donating it back to charity. That's a different model than, than I ever had in the, in the for-profit business world. And the other thing that we're spending a lot of time on is trying to use our entrepreneurial skills to help people in left-behind communities start or grow their companies. And a lot of them don't have access to mentorship. They don't have the relationships and connections into the broader business community. So by us going in, listening to them, trying to look at their challenges through the lens of a business person, and then trying to work with them as much as they want us to, to help them sort of get up the income curve through their company, through their business. And so what are you seeing so far, like in terms of, of results and... We've had more wins than losses. Obviously, businesses, when you start a company, no matter who you are, it's challenging, right? And many of them fail. What we have done is, is we have a staff at, at Business for Good of about 25 people. And we've tried to identify those entrepreneurs in the community that are really hardworking, ethical, honest people that just need a little bit of extra help to get to the next level. Whether or not that's a a woman who owns a grew up in the projects and now owns a soul food kitchen in, in downtown Albany and wanted some extra help to grow, wanted to open up a second location to a flower shop where we helped a very small but lovely flower shop triple in business by bringing in relationships that we had, helping to increase their e-commerce presence. You know, we've helped two female black attorneys that were public defenders making about $60,000 a year. They wanted to start their own private practice, incredibly talented lawyers. We helped them start their own private practice. We gave them office space. We helped redo and did all their marketing for them. And now they're doing all the legal work for our foundation and we're trying to drive more business to them. So that's been really, really fun to see and build this ecosystem of all these businesses working together. So yeah, you're you're touching on some of the stuff from your your book. So also you released a book this year, Wealthy and White, and so you're sharing some of the the, the stories from there. And yeah, that was one of the questions I was going to ask. Of you stress this this idea of an ecosystem approach, right? So instead of just one gift or one business, one entrepreneur, looking at at kind of a network. So can you say more about that and and how that's going? And 
Really, the idea came out of, we, we had gotten to know the families of the surviving families of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. And we, we made a donation to their families. And what we saw when we, we've been, my wife and I have been to Tulsa several times now and met a lot of the families and gotten a lot of the history of the Greenwood section of Tulsa. And what you saw in 1921 was this, probably the most affluent black community in the world, thriving. They had doctor's offices, movie theaters, they had their own hospital, tailors, accountants and attorneys, you name it, grocery stores. All these businesses were working together and everybody was doing really, really well. And this is before white America would patron black stores, right? They, they were doing this all based on the, you know, their own, their own neighborhoods. And we saw that it worked over 100 years ago in Tulsa before the massacre happened, why wouldn't it work now? Especially when you've got a large portion, I would dare to say a large majority of, of white Americans that would gladly support black businesses. And so we saw it working in the past. We thought we could replicate that model on a smaller scale here. And we're seeing it's working. I mean, if we're working with a funeral home, they're getting flowers from the flower shop. If we need employment agreements for some of our restaurants, the attorneys are doing that. If we need catering for a special event, we'll bring in the soul food kitchen. And just trying to broaden that affiliation that affiliation and network to help raise everybody up. And then one of the things that we did that was I'm really excited about is we helped to start the Albany Black Chamber of Commerce. They had one that was in existence, but it was it was really, really small. We wanted to make it one of the nicest black chambers in the country. So we bought a building, put about $3 million into it to renovate it. It's a gorgeous building in downtown Albany. I would say it's probably one of the nicest black chambers in the entire country. They now are doing a membership drive. They've got people using office space there that have certain businesses. We're putting a photography studio in there for, for that's run by a a single black woman. And I'm hoping that this chamber will really help to be sort of an incubator for a lot of these businesses and further that ecosystem connection. Because now all these people of color have a place to go where they can network and socialize and learn from one another. And I'm really excited about it. I think it's long overdue. So we have a connection, a chamber of commerce, a connection space. We have lawyers, you have some food businesses. I know there's a community center. What are the other critical pieces to develop? And I'm curious, kind of like with this ecosystemic approach, how do you identify, like, what do we need? The nice thing is we can afford to take swings and fail. So we can, we can afford to try different things. One of the things that we're going to try to put together is a, a plan for a path to home ownership for people. I've seen organizations around the country that will help provide a down payment for qualified people so that they can, you know, if they get the 20% down payment, they're paying mm -hmm. enough rent now to cover the cost of a mortgage on a $150,000, $200,000 house and helping these folks build generational wealth and income. A lot of that is through homeownership, which has eluded a lot of these folks for so long. I get frustrated when my friends will tell me like, you know, I drive through the parts of downtown Albany and, and the place looks like hell, there's garbage everywhere and, and it's just not kept up. And I said, well, that's because nobody owns anything. There's no incentive for them to keep it up if they're paying rent to these essentially slumlords. The reason why the suburbs are nice is because everybody owns it. So you, there's an incentive to keep it nice and to keep the paint up and mow the lawn and all that kind of stuff. So that's one area that we want to try to get into. I think the other thing is looking at 
other businesses that we're using that we could provide an opportunity for a person of color to help grow their own company. A great example is accounting firms. Like we're using a lot of accounting firms to do a lot of the work at BFG. And predominantly, I'm doing giving it to friends of mine that honestly probably don't need the business, but are doing it because they they have a relationship with me and they want to help us out, but we're still paying them. And for what we're paying, we could help some person of color launch their own accounting firm. And we've got a few hundred thousand dollars in business right out of the gate that we could just just dish to them. All of our businesses that we're starting or many of them that we're helping to grow, they're going to need accounting services, especially as they as they start to get more successful. So that's those are areas that we're looking at, things where we're not trying to recreate the wheel. We're just trying to give people an opportunity that, you know, if you were a person of color and never imagined you could own your own accounting firm and you've been working in Atlanta or Manhattan or you work for the state in New York and you're making good money, but not life-changing money. And maybe they've always had that entrepreneurial bug and we can come in there and support them and help them get off the ground. I don't know how to be a good accountant. That's why I hire them. But I can certainly surround them with people that have built accounting firms that would love to mentor them and help them. And before you know it, much like the law firm, they're up and running and and we're sort of out of the way at this point. So if, if I'm understanding correctly, one of, one of the ways you're looking is like at your, your own supply chain, your own vendors that you're using and saying, hey, instead of spending this money. Yeah. And not, and not trying to hurt white America, right? There's plenty of business that's going around. And I'm also trying to show other white business owners that there are other ways to help besides just writing a check. Like Goldman Sachs, for instance, we do a lot of work with Goldman Sachs and their account people are wonderful. And and they said to us, how can we help? And I said, well, the next time you're having a lunch in your office, rather than hire Panera, hire these local soul food people to come in and cook for you. I said, it would be a very meaningful, you know, and I'm trying to knock Panera. I love Panera, but it, to spread that wealth a little bit and think outside of the traditional box, so to speak, and bring in folks that would, first of all, they would die to go into Goldman. It would be, a, you know, it validates them and makes them walk a little taller. And, you know, if they make 1500 bucks on a lunch, that's significant. So we're trying to get people, you know, Albany Medical Center has been great. We got the flower shop owner in there who was a nurse there for 30 years. And she's now doing a lot of work in the flower shop and gift shop and special events for Albany Medical Center. And it's just connecting people, right? It doesn't all require a ton of dough, but it's a lot of work. So you talked about homeownership as being a, like a key factor, which I totally agree. And, and you have some background in healthcare. Anything around healthcare or health? Because it's a tough well, one. We've tried. We, you know, we've tried, and we can. The best way that we know how currently is to, is to support companies that are that are trying to get folks into healthcare. We met a woman who's a nurse who's starting her company to try to get people to become phlebotomists and uh, nursing assistants. So she takes them through a training program. And then these folks come out and instead of working, you know, at a fast food restaurant, they're making $25, $30 an hour as a phlebotomist and they've got a great income source now. So, you know, we donate to some hospitals and things like that, but, and trying to make sure that we're supporting the limited resources in those communities for healthcare, whether, you know, many of the pharmacies have pulled out because of crime. This is in the inner cities all across the country. Hospital resources are, are lacking, you know, and you're trying to get people to, to not use the emergency room as their primary care doctor, right? But a lot of times if they don't have health care through their employment, you know, that's, that's what they end up doing. 
So it's healthcare is a tough one. I mean, we've tried to do what we can, but it, I mean, it's the whole system is, is a little bit of a mess, right? Yeah, granted. I was hoping, hoping, <laughs> hoping you had so. Oh, Sean, we just do this. I think that to the extent that we can get people into entrepreneurship and business, and then suddenly they're offering healthcare to their employees, or they've got a decent plan where they can offset some of the costs, and then they have healthcare which they never had before. I think that's sort of the way that we have to go at this point. Any other key factors that that would be kind of conducive to the? building of the network that you're looking for? Well, I, th- I think too is, is looking to hire people that might have special circumstances that you have to take in mind, right? Or keep in mind. For instance, some of the people that we're hiring for the restaurants, they might not have transportation at this point. So how do we figure out a way to get them to work? And it's just providing them air cover until they can get really up on their feet. Some people right. need housing. So if we can provide right. housing as part of their compensation for working at the restaurants, that's meaningful to them. I remember there were a couple of years ago at the finger paint group, we had about 30 interns and I got an email, you know, had all the people listed on the internship program. And I think there was one or two people of color and I sort of lost it because I'm like, these are college interns. They're not qualified for anything. Like, it's not like these people are more qualified than anybody else. And their comment was, well, we're not seeing candidates. And I said, okay, well, well, did you go to the historical black colleges to try to recruit? Did you make an offer of housing for these people? Because a lot of these kids, they can't afford to live in Albany and pay 1200 bucks a month for rent for an apartment. And an internship's paying them 1500 a month. We've got to think differently. And to the team's credit, the next year, they were up to like 38, 40% of people of diversity. So I think it's just being very sort of deliberate in what you're trying to do and not just passively take what's out there, right? Because you miss a lot of really good people. Well, speaking of that, I wanted to pick up on one of the, the themes of your book, right? And so as I, as I read it, I really felt the audience for the book is other wealthy white people, right? And I know the title is a little off-putting. People probably think like, who is this jerk saying he's wealthy and white? But what I was trying to do is, is tell folks that are in a similar position and whether or not you're, you've got a little bit of money in the bank and you're looking to retire and you want to do some good or you're a multi-billionaire, what we're currently doing isn't working. Last year, I think we gave $476 billion in this country to nonprofits. And God knows many of them do incredible work and are really needed. But it's not working. The homeless shelters have never been more full. The drug problems are crazier than ever. The food pantries are, the lines are out the block, down the block. So we've got to think a little bit differently. And that's not to say that we shouldn't donate to the United Way or the Red Cross because they need money too. But I think we have to step back and look through the eyes of successful business people and say, how can we fix some of this? Through business, through salary growth, through good paying jobs that have healthcare and not just continue to write a check here or there or buy your wife a necklace at a charity gala and think you're somehow fixing homelessness. Like we've got to get in there and get our hands dirty. And if they don't want to do it, which is fine because it's a lot of work, we'll gladly take their money and put it to good use. Right. So, and I'm sure there are other organizations that, that would similarly do this, but I feel like the foundation that this country was built on has a lot of cracks in it, right? And many of those cracks we created. 
So it's up to us to sort of fix the foundation and help people. You know, I used to think all the time when I was younger that, well, I felt bad for the people in the inner city because clearly they have it harder than I did. But if they work really hard, they'll be able to get out of there. And when you start looking at a lot of the data and you see that the average white high school graduate makes more in their lifetime than the average black college graduate, you realize that work is work alone is not the answer. There's a whole host of other factors pushing against them that we have to try to tackle one at a time. Government can't do it. I don't think the traditional nonprofits are going to be able to do it. It's going to take successful business people that have made a lot of money in the corporate world to be able to say, okay, we're going to try something different. Well, absolutely. I really agree and support your message. And I'm, I'm curious, like, are the right people reading your book or how to get the people to read your book that you wrote it for? Yeah, I don't know. It was on the Amazon bestseller list for about three seconds. But I think it's one of those books that I think it's passed around a lot and people that read it and then send copies to their friends. And we're starting to see that in a lot of the Amazon data that, you know, it'll have a spike in sales and then it'll dip a little bit and then it'll have another spike. And it's usually because I present at a university and all of a sudden some people right. go out and buy it. Or I, I spoke at an investor conference in San Francisco a few months ago and talked to those folks that if you're right. working for a hedge fund or, a, or an investment bank, you're probably doing pretty well. So, and trying to show our model as an alternative to the status quo, so to speak. Well, one of the things I really liked about the book is it felt very personal, right? You're really sharing your life story and, and not just your success, right? It wasn't look how successful I am. You, you really featured some of your, your failures and your learnings. So I, yeah, I wanted you to, I just wanted to ask you, especially as a, a serial entrepreneur, right? There's a lot of failure in entrepreneurship. And then also you're in a position of, of mentorship, you know, not only leading companies, but leading nonprofits that are building these ecosystems and such. So I'm, yeah, I'm just curious how you, how you hold failure or how you maybe even mentor around failure and the, and the learnings that can come from it. I like to look at it as a journey. And when I first started, I made a lot of mistakes completely unknowingly. And I think a lot of that was rooted in the fact that as a successful business person, you know, we all have pretty big egos and we think that we know a lot and we come in and be like, this is what you need to do and this is what you got to have and blah, 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 blah. And I had to learn to be a much better listener and try to understand what the challenges these folks were facing that I couldn't, and there's no way I could have appreciated and I think the other failure was thinking that everybody would know that my heart was in the right spot. These folks will come out and tell you, I don't trust white people. Every time they they screw us over. And I've had people that we've worked with now for a year say, you know, when I first met you, I thought you were full of crap. And now, the, now they're friends of ours. So it's taken a while to build up some street cred, I think, and to to show that we really do care and that we're really different and learning to be a better listener. And I've also found that when I do make a mistake, because people know my heart's in the right spot and we're actually doing a lot of great things, they cut me a break. They, they'll explain to me, yeah, you shouldn't have said this. This is a little bit off-putting for us or whatever, but they don't, they don't dismiss me. And I think a lot of folks in the white community, because of the cancel culture and, and all that chaos that it brings, people are choosing to stay on the sidelines because they're worried about offending people or they're worrying about saying something wrong. And I see that when I bring people, my buddies, to some of these organizations that we're working with, I see that same sense of nervousness that I used to have in them. 
you know, the first thing they want to do is talk about the black friends that they have to try to show that, you know, I'm different. And I, we're just trying to, it's just getting to know each other and understanding what the needs are. And we've met some most amazing people in this journey over the last few years. The biggest challenge, quite honestly, in working with a lot of them is that they are so loving and so generous that, you know, if they don't have any money, they're still the first people to buy a coat for for a cold child or to feed somebody that doesn't have money to pay. I mean, they're just so incredibly passionate towards one another. We had to try to show folks that, hey, it's great to do that. But if you grow your business and you get a little bit selfish on your business, you can buy 100 coats next year and not just two, right? So that's been a learning experience, I think, for both of us. It's just been, it's been an amazing, amazing time. So I think I heard some of this in there, but relationship building, right, is key and, and especially building across differences. So, I mean, I think you're sharing some of it of leading with some vulnerability and, and showing up with, with intentions, but I'm just curious what else you might say about, you know, that you've learned or that you would, any advice you'd offer on, on how to build relationships? I would that. say that just try to meet as many people as you can in the communities, some of the local politicians, meet with some of the people running the other nonprofits, find out what their what their needs are, try to identify areas that you really care about or are passionate about. Just don't have your nervousness keep you on the sidelines, I guess. And mm-hmm. it's tough. It's mm-hmm. challenging, right? Nobody wants to offend anybody. So yeah. Just get out there, huh? Just get out there and try to meet as many folks as you can. And and what I find now is a lot of the folks, they're referring other people to us. The folks we're helping are like, hey, you got to go help Sam or you got to, I want you to meet this guy or this right. woman. We got referred by the flower shop to a Jamaican hair salon. And now we're helping this single mom who owns a hair salon trying to renovate her shop for her and give her a marketing facelift and things like that. And you know, it's just, it's such rewarding work. It's so much fun. And you see the just appreciation in these people's eyes that somebody's actually showing up and caring about them and doesn't want anything in return. You know, I don't want my haircut there. I'm not looking for free haircuts, but it's like just showing them that you're, you matter. I see you. I appreciate how hard you're working just to live paycheck to paycheck. And let's, let's try to help you get to the next level. One thing that occurs just hearing you talk about the, you know, I'd say the nourishment you're getting from the relationships, right, is there is a reciprocity, right, in gifting and receiving. It's something that, that unfortunately, I think has largely been lost in this kind of modern capitalism where the, the exchange is like, hey, we're even, I don't owe you anything, that kind of thing. Whereas the gift creates this value for both sides of receiving and gifting. And it can be, you know, little random acts, right? Like today, I, I went to the Jamaican, I'm sorry, this soul food kitchen in downtown Albany. And I bought 100 tickets to the Sienna versus University of Albany basketball game. And I gave them to the woman, Kizzy Williams, who, who runs the, the soul food kitchen. I said, do me a favor. You know all the kids on the block. You know the families. Give these tickets out. Let these guys go and have a fun time at the game. It's walking distance for a lot of them. And it's just something like that. Like nobody's given them free anything, right? So to say here, here, dad, here, take your three kids to the game. It's just so wonderful to do that. It doesn't cost zillions of dollars. And it's just really makes you feel incredible to be able to be in a position to do something like that. Love it. Another thing that just occurs to me, again, just with your background in entrepreneurship, how do you teach problem solving? Because this kind of think of as entrepreneurs, not necessarily as risk takers, but actually as like really good serial problem solvers, right? It's just you get 
Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the folks that we've helped have asked me to be a mentor to them and to help. So I have standing lunches with a lot of them once a month where they can come in and say, hey, how did you deal with this? Or have you ever faced this? And a lot of times I've seen it or or I can put them in touch with somebody that can help them if they have an HR issue or they want to get people up on payroll because they've been paying everybody under the table. I can set them up with a payroll person or I think a lot of it is just is just connecting them with people that can help. And, and then also just being there to say, look, I, I understand how hard it is. Like when I first met the two female attorneys, you know, they were complaining that the banks wouldn't lend them any money. And, and they assumed that it was because they were black women. And I said, no, it's because you don't have any collateral. So they didn't want to lend me money when I was starting out either. And these are some ways that you can try to get a line of credit or there's certain things that you can do to sort of navigate that because every entrepreneur goes through it. And, you know, I said, when you start making a lot of money, that's when the banks will offer to lend you money. And so it's, you know, it's just the way it is. So we spend a lot of time trying to help mentor and advise these folks when they want it. So Ed, with all your work, what are the kind of the, some of the biggest challenges in front of you to navigate? Well, eventually we're going to run out of money. My wife and I put millions of dollars into this and we, we intentionally haven't asked other people for funding because we wanted to prove the model out. Now I can go to folks and say, look, Miss McKenzie Scott, I put X millions of dollars into this and this is the, what we're seeing. Can you help us to get, you know, take to the next level? I can get, I can get 50 people in first time home buyer stuff if you help me with this initiative. And things like that. And I find that there's so many people out there that want to help. They just don't know how. I think funding is the biggest issue. And also making sure that we don't leave behind the folks that we've already helped. Like it's, I can't go after the next shiny object and start working on the Jamaican hair salon and forget about the flower shop or forget about the funeral home. Right. And my wife is always hammering that into me that we have to make sure that we're always there for these folks even as they get more and more successful, to be able to swing in and, and, and just see how they're doing and everybody hits rough patches to be there for them. I think that's going to be important. It's just making sure that we keep our eye on the ball. So it's not a one-time swoop in, but it's more like ongoing, lifelong relationships. Yeah, unless they want it to be, then we can certainly help with one-offs. Like We certainly would do that too, but we, we want people to know that if they want more help, or if they need guidance in marketing, or they need guidance in how do I do my books, you know, we're a resource for them. I had old white guys I could ask, you know, how do you incorporate? What do you need? You know, how do you set up payroll? How do you register your URL? I mean, things that I had, I could ask people. And, and a lot of these folks, I think, don't, they don't have access to that level of mentorship. Some do, but, but many of them don't. So our ability to come in and just provide a little bit of guidance when needed. I can't make them better attorneys. That, that's on them, right? But I can bring in other attorneys that they might be able to help them to say, this is when you need to hire a paralegal. This is why you want your own title company. This is what, you know, and all these things that I, I don't know anything about. Well, I appreciate that, Ed. Anything our listeners can do to, to support your work? I would just say go to bfg.org. That's our website. And if anybody out there that hears this and, and wants to replicate what we're doing in their town, we'll help them, give them all the learnings and tools that we did. You don't have to call it business for good. You can call it whatever you want. But I'd love to see this movement sort of expand across the country. There's probably some affluent people right now in Topeka, Kansas, that would love to be able to help 
those in their community that, that may need some extra help, but just haven't really thought of this as an option. And, you know, I'm, I'll talk to anybody. I love what I'm doing and met some amazing people. And we're here if anybody needs us. Well, appreciate your work, Ed, and we'll, we'll keep in touch and see how, how it's going. Thank you so Thanks much for, for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.